Welcome to Studying the Song, a podcast to help musical theater actors figure out what to sing and how to sing it so that you shine in your audition, one-woman show, or leading role. My friends, talent and passion are only the beginning. I believe there is freedom in preparation. I believe that when you put in the work, practice the skills, and do the research, something amazing happens. You become so prepared in your craft that you become unstoppable. In this podcast, I want to give you the tools and skills to create a powerful audition book that showcases your artistry and actually gets you work. I want you to feel totally at home reading the musical score of a show, and I want to help you define your unique artistic voice. Consider me your own personal vocal coach in your earbuds, cheering you on and bringing you the reality checks you need along the way. I'm Corey Yamaoka, and I'm so excited to be walking this journey with you. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to Studying the Song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it so you can shine in the audition room. I am your host, Corey Yamaoka. Today's episode, I am going to be interviewing theater educator and author Charles Gilbert. Now, Charles has been training young performers for 40 years. He started the musical theater program at University of the Arts in Philadelphia and headed it for nearly 20 years. He's also the author of the book, The Savvy Singing Actor, and the creator of Savvy Cards, a unique training tool for singing actors and teachers. He's a founding member and past president of Musical Theater Educators Alliance and has taught workshops and masterclasses in America, the UK, Europe, and Australia. Charlie is a professional director and music director whose original works for the musical stage include Assassins, which was the source of the idea for the Tony Award-winning musical of the same name. So I've invited Charlie on the show today to talk about his method for teaching actors how to become singing actors. He calls it being a savvy singer, S-A-V-I, and he'll tell us what each of those letter stands for. I found like what was so neat about his approach is that he's really taken the overwhelming idea of like storytelling through song and created very specific bite-sized exercises that help you work on the individual elements of that storytelling through song technique. So we're going to talk about his book. He's going to outline his methodology, all of that. And um, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of the book, The Savvy Singing Actor. It's an invaluable tool for actors and educators alike. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Charlie Gilbert. Charles Gilbert, welcome to Studying the Song. Hi, Corey. It's great to be here. It's so nice to meet you. This is really the first time that we're talking face-to-face. We have chatted via email. We have so many friends in common, and I'm just so excited to have you today. I wanted to bring you onto the show because you have you know, four decades of teaching students how to perform musical theater under your belt. You are also a director and a music director, so you have all these different angles that you sort of see performance through. Um, You clearly have loads of experience working with student actors specifically and teaching them about performing. So this podcast is exactly that. It's for people that want to keep honing their skills, that want that little like coaching in their earbuds as they're going throughout the day. And I just think that you have so many valuable lessons that you're going to be able to share with them today. So thank you for being with us. Oh, sure. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) So what we'll do is I want to sort of ask you some general questions about storytelling through song. And then I really want to dive into your book, The Savvy Singing Actor, and your accompanying um, teaching tool, what are called savvy cards. And I want you to explain that to us. But before we get into your book specifically, let's start off with this question. What does storytelling mean to you? Well, it means a couple of different things. Things to me. I was thinking about uh, about the question of storytelling and uh, storytelling in the theater. Sometimes telling a story is is just as, as simple as like the balladeer in the ballad of Booth saying, right? Someone tell the story, and and there is an actual story to be told. Uh, but then if you think about what Booth is doing in the ballad of Booth, that's also storytelling uh, of a different kind. He's living in a series of moments, living in a dramatic event that the writers have created for him and and, uh, living in a way that uh, the audience uh, thinks is truthful. And so for me, storytelling in the theater really is very closely aligned with the actor's ability to create behavior 
that really reflects that dramatic event, that communicates that uh, dramatic event. And so for an actor to be a good storyteller, they have to understand the context, they have to understand the event, and then they have to be able to create behavior that, that expresses that. So it's not just the telling, the narration, it's actually living in that with their body and their voice. Right, with their body, with their voice, with their face, with their imaginary life, entering you know, fully into that dramatic moment and being able to uh, said, create behavior out of that moment. And just to clarify, the song you were just quoting and the character you're talking about is from Assassins, the musical. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Just in case anybody isn't quite with us right (laughs) off the bat there. So when you're working with students on a song, at what point do you start talking about storytelling when they're working on their piece? Um, Almost right away. I think that's partly because I'm a a little bit impatient, but also because I kind of see it that way, see it as being fundamental. I've worked a lot as a music director and a stage director, as well as a a writer and and composer. So I'm kind of always coming at uh, a musical theater moment from the point of view of story. So I think uh, once a a singer has kind of got their, uh, their arms around the music of a piece, Right. There's a kind of learning that has to happen first, which is musical in nature. But very quickly, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing on to the notion of story. What's what's happening here? What's happening now? How does this how do these words and these notes and these rhythms kind of tell something about what is happening right now? I think that getting to that question early on really helps the. Uh, helps the singer, it helps the singing actor to, to begin to make choices and begin to understand things from a, from a, a fundamental integrated uh, approach, really uh, integrating theater into, uh, into what they're doing uh, musically and vocally from the very beginning. I love that idea. I'm a huge proponent of the acting choices will lead you to the vocal choices um, can you just talk a little bit about how those connect? Like, what would be an example where maybe they've learned a song musically, they know how to sing it, they know the notes and rhythms, but then something changes when they add the more storytelling intent behind it? I know there's probably a million examples, but share with us what some of those might be. Well, I guess one of the things that uh, really is, is an important early step for me is to help the singer see how the song is not just a single monolithic chunk, but actually a series of, uh, of individual events uh, or phrases. I, I, I like to, to really counsel my students to work uh, phrase by phrase. And so I'm um, trying to learn things in phrases and then uh, fulfill the, the, the structure of those phrases. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of Groping for an example here, but let's go back to Assassins and the, and the ballad of, of Booth here for a moment, right? Sure. Um, yeah, someone tell the story, someone sing the song, right? Angry men don't write the rules and guns don't write the wrongs. Uh, at, at the point where you start to realize that those are just not notes on the page, but a series of distinct thoughts, one which leads to the next, which leads to the next, uh, then you start to open up the possibility for for storytelling behavior, for behavior that really brings the, the, the material to life when you're, when you're sensitive to what makes one moment different from the other one. When you start to think about you know, context and why, why this is happening, why, why in, in this case, say, the, uh, you know, why the balladeer wants to uh, bring this story to his listeners and, 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 uh, and use uh, you know, the example of John Wilkes Booth as a kind of case study your example for a certain kind of tragedy, a certain kind of American event. I have to say, I have assassins on my mind a lot these days because I'm excited about the uh, the revival of assassins that's coming up in November at uh, Classic Stage. So I've been thinking a lot about that. That's great. I love that we're talking about assassins. So as you're talking, and we'll get more into, this is all part of your book, but but before we really dive into it. So as you're breaking things up into phrases, your voice might have different sounds for each of those phrases as you communicate your different elements of your story as you're going, right? Like volume might yeah. be different or tone color or something like that. Sure. Different vocal sounds, different uh, facial expressions, different uh, points of focus, different kinds of physicality or stance. There's a lot of things that you can do from phrase to phrase that really helps to uh, 
differentiate them, it starts to activate that process of choice making. Making choices is really a, a, a crucial to the art of successful singing, acting. And so whether I'm teaching somebody, I'm in a teaching situation, or I'm a, a music director, or I'm a, or I'm a, a director working with an, an artist in that kind of situation, I'm always helping to, looking for ways to guide them to interesting and uh, useful and valuable choices. Now, here's a question. Is this the same way you work with non-singing moments? with dialogue. I'm thinking about like, are there specific challenges that we face when we are doing a singing expression of story? Is Do you have a different approach or is this, this is how you approach acting either way? Well, I think choice making is, is, is going to be at the heart of acting, whether you're doing a play or, or a musical. And I, I've, you know, I've had the chance to do that. I've you know, directed uh, Pinter and Oscar Wilde and Shakespeare and different things that are not musical. But uh, music theater really introduces some specific challenges for the actor. And those have been the challenges that have really been fascinating for me. Uh, music theater is, uh, and, and singing theater is much more structured than, uh, than non-singing theater. A lot of things are kind of predetermined for the performer because of the fact that uh, what you're saying is scored to a particular rhythm and a particular set of pitches and a particular tempo and so on. And I think because music and singing make some performers um, uptight in a way, you know, or, or, or uh, tense, apprehensive in a way of like, oh, I've got to get this right. And, you know, I mm -hmm. want to sound, I, I, it needs to be correct and it needs to sound good and so on. They tend to forget about things that when they're acting without music, just come more, you know, in a, in a more uh, intuitively. Right. Because you're really trying to pay honor to what the composer and the lyricists have written with all of those confines that you just mentioned, the rhythm, the melody, right? The score that's right. accompanying it. Yeah. I, that is such an interesting added layer. And that does sort of trip people up and make them think, well, I've got to do it this way. I have to get these things, quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're just reading dialogue, right could be so many different things for each actor. Pitch could be at so many different levels. Yeah. I had the advantage uh, coming up, you know, kind of growing up, of growing up in, I think of it as kind of growing up in two different worlds. I grew up in music world and in theater world. So, I, you know, as a boy, I was taking piano lessons and uh, playing bassoon in the school orchestra and stuff like, you know, kind of learning the rules of theater world, of music world. The rules of music world say, number one, don't make a mistake. You know, don't play the wrong note. Don't come in too soon or too late. There's, there's a, so there's a lot of right and wrong in music world and mm. follow the conductor. You know, there's the, there's that idea that the maestro is there and, and kind of leading you and you have to really uh, pay attention to the leader and, and really be strictly governed by that. And then in theater world, uh, there's a lot more emphasis on play and kind of self-expression and creativity and uh, em emotion. And so, you know, I, I became fluent in both of those worlds. And, and that meant that uh, as I got into uh, college in particular, I was interested in, in the ways that those two worlds collided with, with each other. Um, and uh, started to investigate more um, musical theater things, whether that was uh, as a singer and as a performer or as a, a songwriter. I started writing songs or even as, a, as a, a stage director looking for ways that those worlds informed each other. So they're, they're, they're really two very different things. I take it for granted. I mean, music is like a second language to me and probably to you too, mm -hmm. just from what I know about your, your background. But for a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, music is a thing that makes, kind of fills them with anxiety and dread. I often forget, like when I'm looking at a score, it's very plain to see what the drama is that's unfolding on the page mm -hmm. as far as mm -hmm. like tempo changes and like fermatas and cesuras and uh you know retard like all these things are sort of cued drama and for a lot of actors they're just trying to learn what to sing they're not seeing all that extra layer of how this is going to inform their acting so yeah i think it's good to remember that they really are different worlds and 
And every actor that we're teaching has a different level of comfort with each of those sides, right? The theater side and the music side. Right. Let's start talking about your book because this does transition into that because you have some ways of thinking about teaching theater that I think you draw from the music world. So your book is called The Savvy Singing Actor. And I want to know, why did you write this book? Why did you feel compelled? What was missing in the, um, you know, the pedagogy of musical theater that you thought you wanted to say? Well, I, um, I started teaching musical theater really early on in, in my uh, academic career. Um, I started teaching back in the, uh, in the 1980s. And at that point, there really were not a lot of books in the field. It, it, that's a thing that has really changed in, in the time since I began teaching. But there were a couple that really caught my attention that were interesting and very helpful to me early on. Um, and one was uh, uh, Wesley Box, the complete uh, singer-actor. And another one was uh, David Craig's On Singing on Stage. I don't know if you, if you know either of them, but they're both books that kind of lay out a kind of approach, a systematic approach to, to, to singing acting. That was, that was the thing that was intriguing to me as a teacher was how to teach an approach, not just kind of coach people along and say, do a little more of this and turn there and hold your arm out when you say that, you know, being like a director, I really wanted to teach people a, uh, you know, a, a technique that they, that they then gave them some ownership and some agency of, of what they were doing. And those two, those two teachers in particular, uh, Wesley Balk and David Craig were, were, I saw were, were doing that, but neither of them was quite, you know, I didn't quite share the sensibility of either of them. Uh, Wes Balk is really focused on operatic repertoire. He speaks a lot in, in the examples he draws on. He's talking about opera. David Craig is a kind of old Tin Pan Alley era, you know, uh, he's just from a different age and a different sensibility. Uh, and, and I was uh, I was uh, excited by the experimental theater at this point. I still am, you know, experimental music theater, the kinds of things that were being done that were uh, that were innovative and and new. And I just saw there was an opportunity to try and put some things together in in a different way. And so I I loved being in the in the studio, being in the classroom as a way to try out and experiment and see. Well, we'll try this and we'll try that. And then eventually, I began to. to uh, compile things that were, you know, the, the best of what worked. I began to, you know, develop the savvy cards as a tool, a, a, a language and a, a kind of a, a way of making, presenting things so that it could be organized and so that it could be grasped by a, by a student without being overwhelmed by the complexity of it. I loved all the examples of the exercises within your book, um, and I want to get to those actually, but let's break down SAVVY first, because SAVVY is actually an acronym, S-A-V-I, and then I want to talk about these SAVVY cards. So what does SAVVY mean? Well, SAVVY is, I mean, first of all, it sounds like a word that, re that we really exist, right? SAVVY is a word that means smart, right? If you're, you know, you kind of know what's up, right? Savvy is like smart in a practical sort of way, not a highfalutin way. And that was the thing that I liked. But yes, savvy is an acronym. Actually, early on when I was working on this, I rearranged those letters and it was called Visa uh, <laughs> because I'd, I'd hit on the, the kind of those four traits, but I put them in a different order. And then as I worked on it more, I thought, I'm never going to get, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in trademark hell if I try to call this the, you know, like the Visa card system. <laughs> so I, I, I backed off of that and, and I was, was finding uh, SAVVY as an acronym was a very happy accident. But the, the letters of SAVVY refer to the four key attributes of effective singing acting. And those are specificity, authenticity, variety, and intensity. Those four qualities are the ones that I focus on uh, in, my, in my teaching and in the book. And I maintain that if you can really develop your work in a way to promote specificity, authenticity, variety, and intensity, you're really on your way to being effective as a singing actor. All right. So let's walk through each one briefly. What does specificity mean? What are we being specific about? Well, specific can be a lot of things, but really in, it, in its simplest form, specific means making a choice, doing this and not that, being uh, you know loud and or and not soft, being using twang in your voice and not using a breathy sound, uh, smiling and not frowning, going here and not going there. Um, specific 
really is, uh, there's a, so many dimensions that uh, you can get into specific in terms of the dramatic event and the story and the context, understanding what's there, being specific in terms of uh, the music. Is this note staccato or is it legato and connected to the next one? Or is it accented or is it unaccented? Um, God is in the details. That's the thing that, that Steve Sondheim, among other people, is fond of saying. And so specific is about really being attentive to the details and the choices that you're making for each each phrase of your song. And having that prepared, like going through the process of rehearsing and making the choices so that when we're up on stage, we're not just spontaneously choosing specifics. Right. Spe- specificity <laughs> comes through rigorous preparation, right? Um, famous quote from uh, all Stanislavski teachers quotes, uh, Stanislavski saying, in general is the artist's greatest enemy, right? Mm. That if you do things generally, that that makes for bad art. And so specific is the opposite of, of general. Sometimes when I'm talking about uh, being specific, I talk about the difference between shish kebab and applesauce. Yeah, let's talk uh, about that. Well, uh, that's a great kind of culinary metaphor for me about uh, applesauce. Um, as you know, you raised a, a, a toddler, and when you I feed the applesauce, applesauce <laughs> to a kid, you know it's it's all the, the same. Every bite of applesauce is is the same as every other bite of applesauce. It's the same consistency, and it's the same uh, uh, sweetness, and it's the same texture, and it's delicious. But it's just all the same. It is. But if you <laughs> if you get uh, if you get uh, a shish kebab, then you have a skewer, and it's got you know a little bit of onion, and a little bit of pepper, and a little bit of lamb, and a little whatever. Each each bite is something different, and so I really encourage my uh, my students to look for it. Look at the song as like individual things that are distinct and different, and to really pay attention to those differences because it's so easy to make the mistake of singing a song out of a kind of generality of mood, whether that's mm-hmm. a kind of, you know, sad and earnest mood, or whether that's a, a you know, a hyper and upbeat kind of energized mood, but to play out of a generality of mood rather than being specific to the individual words, the phrases of the song and, and, and the, the, the drama of the song. When I read that analogy in the book, I just loved it. I thought I'm definitely using this with students because especially I find with younger, like high school actors that are just sort Mm -hmm. of getting into thinking about these concepts. And I feel like it's so, it's so insightful. Like they can understand if they're just playing a general mood, like, yeah, that's bland. There is no storytelling that's happening. It's just like, I feel this. Whereas shish kebab, it's one thing to the next thing. It's a different bite. Every sensation is different. It's something new for the audience to grab onto. I'm going to throw you a curveball right now and ask you something that was not on my (laughs) interview questions that I sent you. Because I've been thinking about this Um, with pop music. So let me just put that Mm -hmm. out there in your brain. Do you think that pop music is by nature, more of an applesauce way of songwriting, that it is living in sort of a general state? Or I'm totally putting you on the spot, so feel free to decline this if you wish. But Or do you think that it can be shish kebab? And that's sort of like, I'm thinking actually as done top 40 radio, rather than like next to normal, which is inspired by pop rock music, Mm -hmm. but written by a musical theater person. Like, what do we do if we're singing Respect by Aretha Franklin? Well, see, I I, I love this question. And and this has been one of the big challenges that has presented itself for for singing actors as more and more pop music finds its way onto the musical stages is how do you reconcile those things? I will say this, that not all pop songs are created equal, but uh, certainly... A song like Respect, okay, we'll talk, let's talk about Aretha Franklin sing, singing uh, Respect, that, that that song can have a kind of general sassiness to it, and you can, and, and you can use that uh, as your way into the song. But to make a performance interesting, I still think there's the necessity of finding in each phrase something specific that you can connect to that, so that even in that little two or three minute time frame that uh, that is a pop song that is very repetitive that you're going to find individual 
moments. It's not just one one color or one flavor for the duration of the song. And if you look at uh, who is it, uh, Jennifer Hudson, who is portraying Aretha Franklin in the, in the movie now, she's she's really masterful and really specific in, in in choosing things and finding ways to anchor those words so it's not just um you know i'm up here grooving and singing a pop song but also that i these words are meaningful to me right uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 as a woman as a woman who is his who has not gotten the respect that she wants and so you find ways to activate those words i think that the, the i will say the pop music that excites me the most is the pop music that is written in a way that has those kinds of possibilities to it. And there is some kind of, there are some pop songs that are less well-suited to that. Mm. But there are also, that's true of theater songs too. There are theater songs that really lend themselves, that come alive when you start making specific choices and, and the choices are kind of embedded in the songs. And then there are other theater songs that are really pretty uh, general and, you know, you have to work hard as a performer to find ways to make them specific. Interesting. It goes both ways. That's true. Just because it's a theater song does not mean that those choices are clearly laid out in the song for you. You always have to do that work yourself. Okay. So good. Thank you for answering that. Um, Sure. Let's keep going. So that was specificity. A stands for authenticity. What do you mean by that? Well, authenticity is simply the truth. We have to bring the truth as performers. You know, that's a, a thing that uh, that audiences crave when they see you on the stage. They want to know that you are singing your, your your truth and the truth of this character in this moment. Uh, so authenticity is really about finding a way to behave truthfully on the stage and also eliminating the kinds of habits and mannerisms and unconscious things that we do that kind of diminish our truthfulness without our even knowing it. What would those things be? For instance, um, how you use your uh, your gaze. One of the things that when we're listening to a singer, we really rely on their uh, the singer's eyes to tell us about their emotional a connection to the material and so if you sing but allow your gaze to just not not be active you know you're singing with, with glassy eyes mm-hmm. even though you're really feeling you know in your heart you're thinking i'm, I'm connected to the truth of this but it, it's not getting through because your 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 eyes are are uh, dead or your or your face is is tense because of the effort of uh, of, of vocalism the effort of singing Yeah. I often call that dead face, which I'm sure that's not original to me. Many people call that. And it's funny how actors will not even realize that they're doing it because there is an inner life going on. They do, they are thinking through, but it's not uh, translating out to their physical body, which is a challenge for many people to get that behavior as you were talking about to manifest itself. Sometimes the mute, the mute, sometimes it's the music that can mask the truth as well. That when you think, as a singer, your job is to deliver the music, and so you're not really paying attention to the truth that is in in the words. And so often, when I'm trying to work for greater authenticity, I use exercises like monologuing the song, speaking the text without the music, paraphrasing the text into your own words, uh, personalizing the text, and looking for those ways in which uh, a singer's personal temperament and experience is kind of congruent with the, with what's going on in the song uh, and taking the music away for a while because music for some people is very, you know, the kind of the structure and the artificiality of it can really be a barrier at first to discovering and expressing something in a truthful way. Yeah. And there's some songs that really, like you said, they kind of work against you almost where they can be so beautiful that it lulls you into just being, you know, singing a beautiful melody rather than Mm -hmm. really working through what the character's working through while they're, they happen to be singing a beautiful melody. Um, I mean, I, you just said the word, um, personalization, and I just want you to elaborate on that because we're trying to be authentic in our roles, but we haven't been through everything that our character has been through. Those aren't always our exact story. So for every actor, you're going up there and you're playing somebody else, but you have to find something in yourself to bring to it. So what does personalization mean? Well, um, understanding yourself for, for one thing, looking, kind of examining in a thoughtful way, what is the inner life of 
this this character um, and uh, you know the, the situation that they find themselves in, and then looking for those congruencies, right? So let's go back to our example of the Ballad of Booth and John Wilkes Booth, who has just you know in the hours before he sings has killed a president and escaped, you know, being you know, pursued by a crowd to a, to a, to his hiding place, and now he's singing about why he did what he did. Well, if I'm playing the role of Booth, I've never killed a president, but I certainly have been you know passionate about a cause and and you know, I look in, in myself for what are, what is what is the thing that matters so much to me that I would risk you know a, you know, a, a desperate act like that uh, for the sake of of my cause and actually that's one of the things that's brilliant about that that song is that as he sings you know the country is not what it was and we we're kind of drawn into his uh, you know the kind of the logic of what he did and then as audience members we can empathize with that and we can almost for a moment think oh I see why he did that and I understand that so it, it's a combination of I guess investigating the character investigating yourself and then using your imagination to connect the dots. That's a great example. Yeah. So again, a story that not one of us hopefully has ever done, but to liken it to what are the things I'm so passionate about that, as you said, I would do a desperate act. I love that. Thank you for that. So on example, that's wonderful. All right. So what does this V stand for again and explain it to us? Right. So V is for variety. And variety just means each moment has to be a little different from each other. We don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again because the audience loses interest uh, and, 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 and gets bored. If, you know, uh, obviously, if you're with somebody who's just saying the same thing over and over and over again or doing the same thing over and over again, after about 10 seconds, we kind of tune out. And so I find that for for the singer, a great rule of thumb is as you get to each new phrase, you want to find something that's a little bit different, whether it's your action verb, whether it's something about your vocalism, whether it's something about your facial expression or your focus or whatever, just something that's a little bit different. This is really ties back to the psychology of, of the audience and how we, when we're listening to a song and seeing a song performed, how we, we understand it. When we see somebody singing a song, our minds are constructing meaning based on what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And the things that really get our minds going, our kind of puzzle solving minds, is when we see two things that are different from each other, right? And so if I sing my funny Valentine, a sweet comic Valentine, and that second phrase is just, it's verbally, it's a little bit different. The language is it's, it's the same, but I'm gonna kind of lean into the difference. What makes the second it's like I'm trying to find words that are more more exact or that really more precisely descriptive than my first phrase was and in in that contrast between the first phrase and the second phrase the audience is listening and, and kind of derives meaning from that so contrast creates meaning lack of contrast really does not serve to create meaning as well as contrast and so variety is the uh, the art of making sure that there's a little bit of contrast, a little bit of chiaroscuro or uh, differentiation between those original phrases. Again, going back to the example of the shish kebab, right? Uh, it's what, what keeps people interested. It's the spice of life. It is. I love that you, when you were writing in the book, you said that it is that puzzle solving brain that we have, that every human that we we're trying to figure things out and we're trying to draw connections from one thing to another. And it's exciting when you give us two different things that we're trying to figure out how they match. What is the story that connects those two things? That was so brilliant. It really like opened my eyes to thinking about it in a different way, something that I had already understood intuitively, but now have a way to phrase it. So it was really nicely said in the book. Um, and right now, as you're explaining it again. So lead us on now, what does the I stand for? Well, I is for intensity. And certainly when you put words to music and you deliver them in performance, that creates intensity. Everybody's talking about uh, Jennifer Holiday on the Tony Awards last week, right? And she, she sang her song, And I Am Telling You I'm Not Going with this intensity. That was the thing that everybody remembered about that. Oh, she blew the roof off the place, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's the thing that uh, as a singing actor, you need to be able to do. You need to bring, be able to bring that kind of power 
whether that's just vocal loudness or emotionality or physical extremes. Um, it's, it, it reminds me that musical theater is an extreme sport, right? That we, that we, we go as, as spectators, we go because we want to experience those extremes. You know, that moment when she sings, and I'm, and she's you know, stretching out those those notes and impossibly long and impossibly loud and 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 everybody's heart is just beating fast. That's partly that's that's the excitement of of musical theater that uh, that intensity. So how do you bring that? You know, what are the things that you? Some of that is like athletic. You know, just training like an athlete would to be able to jump higher and and kick harder and punch harder you know that it's, it's athletic training but it's also strategic as well in order to create intensity you also have to know how to bring things down sometimes softness can and and ease is also an important part of learning to create intensity because if you're always turned up to 11 then uh, then your listener gets fatigued by that. So variety and intensity really kind of dance together sometimes. They do. I love that. Someone who I feel like, or a show that I feel like is intense from beginning to end and is very difficult for me to listen to in one sitting is Evita. <laughs> Even though there are moments, but maybe because it's like through sung, um, that it's just so much like I, I, my ears get overwhelmed and those moments where the volume does come down and those moments where we're more intimate, you're like, Oh, you're so ready for them because it, mm -hmm. it's an intensity of a different direction, right? More intimate, more close, more small. Um, I don't know. I just felt like I want to talk about Evita right there. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to transition now. So we have specificity, authenticity, variety, and intensity. So those are like the overarching, um, what do you call them? Tenets of what you're teaching. But what's interesting to me is also how you're teaching them and this idea of the etude. And this is what I was referring to earlier in our conversation, that you've brought some music kind of work and even dance kind of terms into how you teach musical theater. So can you share with us, what is this idea of an etude of how you would teach this and maybe give us an example of one of those exercises? Sure. I think I think that's a great question, and it really gets to the to the heart of something that I'm I'm really passionate about. Um, when I was uh, uh, the head of music theater when I, at UArts for so many years, and even before that at Syracuse University, I, it was really great to be able to work with people who were expert teachers in a lot of different things. People who were dancers, people who were musicians. I was inspired by um, the ballet studio and what goes on in the ballet studio. The way that uh, people learn ballet is it's it's a group class. It begins at the bar. There is a particular sort of vocabulary that is technical in nature. There are rudiments that you learn at the bar before you ever go out and begin uh, trying to you know dance Swan Lake. Uh, you know, uh, you know to, to dance a great choreography. You work on on the, the rudiments. If if you're an instrumentalist, if you're learning to play the piano or, or the, the snare drum. One summer I had a summer job editing snare drum technique manuals. And so learning those kind of par paradiddles and rademacues and all the things that, that a, a drummer learns, you know, you don't think about that when you're watching, you know, a great drummer just play a, a spectacular solo on the drum set that they yeah. learned to play the drums by doing, you know, those, you know, those paradiddle patterns uh, or the, the scales that you play as, as a musician. Or even as a pianist, like you've got these Hannon books that are just like endless. Diff they're not even just scales. They're all different little fingering patterns that you might mm -hmm. come across when you get into a, 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 an actual classical piece. I mean, I remember doing that in my undergrad. The Clementi exercises, again, more new patterns and different little physical. It's like you're memorizing physical movements so that when right. they come up in the piece itself, you already know it. It's already in your body. And you don't really realize that that Hannon etude is actually strengthening your fifth finger because your fifth finger is weak and lazy. But then at the end of playing that, you know, there's there's one of the eight uh, Hannon pieces in particular. I remember I always kind of a go-to for me. And when I'm done playing it, my my fifth finger is all of my, the side of my hand is always like, ah, that I'm was shaking. That, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that was kill, killing me. Yeah. So you, so uh, I had that experience as, as a pianist. I'm, I'm not super athletic, but I've also, you know, watched athletes train and I go, go to the gym and I you know work out on the 
on different machines that are designed to just isolate one muscle or one group of muscles and make them stronger. Through observing all of these kind of related fields, I, I began to realize that there was something that was missing for musical theater that existed in these other fields. Like even 20 years ago, I mean, one of the early presentations that I did about my work was, it was called a, creating a bar, a ballet bar for the singing actor that is trying to find something analogous to the ballet bar for what a singing actor could do. Exercises that are not performance. It's not like le learning a song and performing a song, but it's working on the skills that you need so that when it comes time to perform that song, your instrument is ready, you're, and you've got the, the skills there. So that was a really important breakthrough when I realized that there was a need to work on the singer as well as the song, and that I could develop these etudes uh, as ways of working on the singer in the same way that, you know, the hand and finger exercises or uh, the vakai vocalese, you know, the, uh, exercises or so on, that yeah, I could create little songs, little musical events that were, you know, would also give me a chance to use my creativity and my kind of song, my interest as a composer and a songwriter, but to make these things that were also uh, training experiences. I was just going to say, when I was reading about it, I was like, yes, yes. Because every time I'm working on a song, I'm coaching a student, right? And I zero in, like, let's just do those four bars. And we'll do four bars for 30 minutes and talk about all these different things. And I know it drives them crazy because they're thinking, I have, you know, this whole song in front of me that we need to work on. And it's, we have been missing in musical theater. How do we just work on the skill of combining the music with the acting and not have an entire song laid on this person's shoulders? Are there those smaller pieces, a little eight bar or 16 bar exercise that we can do with them that does not have to be worked towards a performance, can just be in the practice room, in the classroom, and then they can take that, they've worked on it, they've worked on it, it's in their body, and now they implement it into their song. So I just appreciate so much this whole concept, um, but I interrupted you. So go on, what are you going to share with us next about this? Perhaps an example? One of the things that, uh, that I do a lot is to uh, build on the vocalises that a, the student will learn with their singing teacher. Um, so, so that a student might have a, a, a favorite pattern or I introduce some basic patterns like uh, we sing a pattern of descending thirds, you know, may me mama as a kind of, and you know, there's always that moment where people like want to do their vocal warm up at the beginning of the class. And so you sing a pattern like that, but then I would say, okay, well, let's, let's use that pattern, but now let's make a certain kind of choice with that pattern, like a choice about emotionality or a choice about subtext or a choice about circumstances. And I say, okay, sing that, but now sing this song as if you're accusing me of something, may, me, ma, or mm -hmm. like you're uh, apologizing for something, may, me, you know, and, and, and we begin to um, take things that are not, it's not like this is Sondheim or Rogers and Hammerstein or something, but this is just like the things that you're doing to work on your voice and adding another dimension to it. Um, some of the people who are really enthusiastically responding to this work that I'm doing are our voice teachers, our singing teachers who are finding this is a way to add an element of theater performance or theater awareness, even in the voice studio. Yeah. Um, by, by saying, well, let's, let's take this vocal exercise that, you know, that used to be just about making a beautiful, perfect sound. But now instead, let's, let's integrate that with um, the act of dramatic expression with the, you know, with movement or with facial expression or with changes in, in, in a timbre or with, a, with the use of coordinating that with the visual focus. You look over here and you sing, may me, mama, moo. And then you look over here and you sing, may me, mama. And suddenly you've got two phrases. I mean, we're doing this all for each other on Zoom so you can yeah. see what I'm doing, but hopefully yeah. your listeners will, will get what I'm doing here. You know, these kinds of things, it, it feels kind of like the ballet bar. This was a, another point that I wanted to make about, about the bar. Um, Twyla Tharp at age whatever she is now, still gets up and goes to the bar every day. That's what a dancer does. There's a part of 
the discipline of the dancer is that you continue to do the fundamentals. If you're a, a, a yoga practitioner, you know, you're going to do downward facing dog every time. It's going to be part of your practice. And I love that, you know, the word practice, uh, when you talk about a yoga practice or what you do, what a dancer does as their practice, you know, I try to look for ways to improve the quality of my students' practice and to think of it as practice is something that you do that is at, at the heart of your work as, as an artist and that you can go back to these same basic things and deepen your practice just through, you know, daily, daily repetition. So let, let's zero in on, on one exercise and you actually use this concept in many of the exercises, but um, I want to read you a little quote of yourself to you. A song must be understood and presented as a journey a series of events that occur in sequence. Navigating the journey of the song is like following turn by turn directions. So this goes back to what you were talking about earlier about phrasing, variety, having different choices, these turn by turn directions. Can you explain what that means? I mean, you've ridden in the car and and, and had uh, Siri navigate you or Google Maps navigate for you. I rely on that a lot. And when and, and turn by turn directions means we're just going to focus on this, you know, for this phrase, you're going to do this thing. And then at the end of that phrase, it will, then you'll kind of change your direction and go on and do the next thing, right? So you drive down to the corner of the street. And until you get to that corner, that's all you're concerned about is going, you know, doing that one little step in the process. And then there's time, there comes a moment where it's time to make the turn. And the little voice in the dashboard of my car says, "In five minutes, in five hundred feet, get ready to turn right." You know, and then you turn right, and then you're on another road, and the, that road is different, and you're doing something else. I like that idea of, of turn by turn directions because it was an antidote to what I saw as the the trap that a lot of my students were falling into, which was not taking the wheel of their song, not navigating their own song, but st- instead. I would say, well, it's like you're a passenger in this song rather than in the driver's seat. You know, you're, it's like you're, you're a passenger riding in the back, just expect, expecting that the song will take you there. But where, in fact, you really have to be uh, at the wheel of the song steering when you get to that moment where, you know, oh, now I have to now I have to do this. Now I have to uh, as, as I come to this moment, I, I don't have to make the turn until that particular moment. And until I get to that moment of the, of, of the turn, I can really focus on the thing that I'm doing. And then the moment comes, I make the change, and now I've moved on. Now that the thing that I was doing before doesn't matter anymore, and now I'm just doing the next thing. So how do we know what, yeah, how do we know what the moment of the change is? You use a word called ding. What is a ding to you? What is, how do we use this as an actor? Well, the ding for me is the beginning of the new phrase or the beginning of the new thought. It's that, that onset, like that kind of aha. I just, you know, I, I, I just thought of this next thing. When I work with a singer on a song, we try to identify where are those moments that are the transitional moments where one thing ends and the next thing begins. The dings are, if you will, they're like the turns in the journey of the song, the place where first you were headed this way and now you're going to turn and, and go that way. Actually, I use a, a, a triangle, the musical instrument, the triangle, or a, a desk bell, and I actually will make that ding sound in, you know, in the studio or in, in, in a one-on-one coaching to remind the student. It's like, oh, now it's time to think of something else. So I would let's see if I can just be a, a little uh, more specific. So you're always sorry. You're always grateful. You're always wondering what might have been. Then she walks in, right? That's the beginning of a of a song from from Company. You're in the world of Sondheim today. I like it. Okay. <laughs> well, what can I say? Always. Um, so you're always sorry. Ding. You're always grateful, right? It's like um, so when you're saying you're always sorry, grateful isn't there yet. You're not mm-hmm. thinking about grateful yet, maybe. But you're you're going to say you're always sorry. Ah, but also then this is different. You're always grateful and then ding you're always wondering what might have been ding then she walks in right and and, and often when you do this uh, do company as a play there's somebody actually walks in and 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 so that 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 kind of triggers that moment i've seen that songs 
sorry, grateful performed as a kind of applesauce ballad of beauty. You know, it's just a beautiful ballad. You're always sorry, you're always grateful. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there's a really kind of dynamic argument that Sondheim is is presenting in 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 that lyric about contradictions, right? That things are, you know, things are can be both good and bad. It's a, it's a classic song of of ambivalence, and the singer is trying to puzzle that out. So you have to put the dings in. You have to know that you're always sorry is not the same as you're always grateful, and which is not the same as you're always wondering what might have been. Even in even in that short little stanza of that song, there are four dings. There are four distinct opportunities to make a choice and to understand how the thing you're saying now is different than the thing that you were saying previously, and they all kind of add up to make a, an argument or make a, make a point. I think in the case of, of the character who's singing, that he's kind of trying to communicate to his friend Robert what he's figured out about marriage and, and how marriage is a kind of mixed, uh, you know, mixed experience. It's not always good. It's not, not always bad. It's a, and what does that ambivalence feel like in a, you know, in a kind of moment-to-moment way? So how do we go about identifying where those are? Because what you've just said could just be thought as one musical phrase or maybe two mm-hmm. musical phrases, but you've in fact broken it up into four phrases of intent or four little dings that we experience. Mm-hmm. What are some of our, what are some cues that show us when we have um, a change of thought or are there a multiplicity of ways we could interpret it, I guess, for every song? Right. Well, and uh, analyzing a song is, has an element of creativity to it, but some things I like to think are pretty obvious, like punctuation, for instance, periods and commas and semicolons and things like that. Often they tell you um, because they de- they delineate the the the, the flow of uh, language and the flow of thoughts. Often um, a phrase will end with a sustained note, and so the thing that happens after a sustained note and the breath is a is a new thing. So musically, there are signs like that that often often tell you the you know uh, give you a sense of where the onset of a new phrase is. Looking for certain key words like like and or but, connecting words. However, you know those those are also um, kind of uh, for me signals of. Uh, of where the where the dings are, where those changes in direction are. Yeah, you've got a great little bit on page two sixteen called the taxonomy of dings, and it's your <laughs> list of words <laughs> that show um, that something new is happening. So you have and or I mean these are like I don't know if these are just subtext things you're thinking or if these are actual what's in the lyric, but. I mean, would be like a slight modification of the previous phrase using Mm -hmm. other words to communicate a more precise meaning. I love that. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, but, which you just said, which is like this, but totally new direction over Mm -hmm. here. Other ones, aha, a discovery moment. And new, new dings occur at the onset of a new idea. And perhaps maybe that is what you just said, where you really do have a punctuation mark. You've got your held out note. It's done, and then the new thing happens. So it's just so helpful because you can really go through your song and visually just see them pop out to you if you're reading those lyrics. Um, and and of course, as you said, you actually go in and, and you mark where those happen, and this is part of the practice and the preparation is going through your song and being able to live in the moment of experiencing those dings, those changes of intent for every phrase and when you do that for a three and a half minute song, I mean, that's just exhausting. This is what you mean. Like we are athletes when we're doing this to be in that emotional moment from beginning to end, experiencing that whole journey. That's the challenge, right? Like that is our sport as musical theater performers. Right. And and, and it is, it's, it's like an Olympic level sport when it's done well, the people who do it well, you know, uh, are, are have mastered a really complex set of uh, of skills, and that, that they're able to apply simultaneously. Because, I mean, to, in order to be a successful singing actor, you're you're multitasking all the time. You know, it's it's a full full brain experience. Part of your brain is working on you know music management, and then part of your brain is is 
doing feelings and emotions and then here in the in i in kind of in the executive function of your brain that you know you're kind of managing here you know the the, the dings and going you know from one ding to the next and so it really is yeah. a uh, it requires a lot of uh, a lot of agility of mind and a lot of clarity of mind to do it successfully. I'm I'm thinking, you know, I see when I see an actor or a student that I'm working with, you can see them living in that moment for maybe thirty seconds or a minute. Like, how do we? And then they'll like go back into. I'm thinking about my voice, or I'm thinking about getting lunch after this. How do we stay in that moment? How do we stay in the life of our character? Is it just practice or is there something more that can help us for that? Well, I think that um, stamina is, is an athletic uh, trait, right? Like a, you know, one of the things that makes a certain athletes better than others is that they can just keep going longer. And so I think that you do train to acquire stamina. Uh, and also building habits so that you get in, in, in the habit of paying attention to those dings so that it, it, it kind of becomes second nature or automatic to know where, where, those, uh, where those dings are. So I think those, those are two things that really come with, with training and training that is really quasi-athletic in, in nature, being able to pay attention to really specific details and do that over the duration of a, you know, a 10 minute aria or, you know, an act of a, a you know, a, a scene of a musical or, or so on that, you know, you, you, you build up to that. The etudes, the things that, that I, that uh, I, I often work with, with students who are meant to be at, at first, it's like, well, you can do this uh, a little bit and then we'll do it a little bit more and then we'll do it a little bit, a little bit longer, but through, over a period of, multiple sessions working with a, with a group of students, I really do see those qualities grow. This is why we have our daily practice that we come back to and that this we are picking it up again and again and working on these rudiments, as you said. So everything we've been talking about is in your book. I highly recommend actors and teachers get this book. And we have both in the listenership of this podcast. As a teacher, though, you've added an extra element. Not only can you purchase the book and, and hear about your, your ideas on this and get ideas for etudes and exercises to use in our own classes, but you've actually created savvy cards. And this is just like an additional, a deck of cards that well, you're going to explain, have different pictures on them, different words on them that we can utilize in the studio with our students or as ourselves as an actor in our own practice. What are these savvy cards about? How do we use them to engage all the things we've been talking about today? Well, uh, savvy cards were a, a tool that really evolved first for me in, in the group class setting. I, I was using them uh, when I was teaching with groups, trying to, as, as, as we were working on notions like kinds of choices to make, becoming more specific. And uh, what, what I found was that people didn't have a large uh, set of options or a large vocabulary of options available to them. If I said, now do something do something different, you know, make a new choice. People were like, uh, uh, what, you know, what should I choose? So when I began to develop these, I'd make a set of like adjectives and I'd hand them around. Everybody would get a different act, you know, adjective and we'd stand in the circle and we'd do our vocal warmups, but everybody had a different adjective. And so one person over there was coming, you know, was, was singing, but she was, and she was fierce and angry and somebody else over here was singing and they were, you know, embarrassed and nervous. And it was really a, a great lively scene. And then we'd pass the cards around the circle, right? On the next phrase, everybody would get a new card. And uh, it really functioned like a catalyst for choice making. That's, I guess, the, the, maybe the simplest way that I can explain it. The cards are a catalyst for creative choice making. And the cards are in about uh, eight categories there are um, adjective cards, there are action verb cards, there are subtext cards so you know um like something that you might be thinking while you're singing that phrase there are um facial expression cards which are photographs of people being emotionally expressive but just photographs of of, of the faces um there are there are cards that have to do with with music and, and music and voice that, that say things like you know legato and accented and staccato and so on but 
regardless of the different categories that are there, they all function as catalysts for choice making. And initially they were developed for work in the studio with, with groups because I was trying to find ways to make group teaching engaging and fun because when you're teaching musical theater at the college level, you're working with you know a dozen or 15 or 18 students at once and you need something that can get the whole group involved and energized and, and so on. What I found though was people began to take the cards back into the practice room and use them on their own, use them as, a, as tools for personal development. When you're in the practice room, that's a lonely place. It's a kind of a sensory desert. And so the <laughs> idea that you could that you could take out your your cards in the in the practice room when you're alone and say, well, I think I I want to work on emotions today, or I want to work on actions today, or I want to just work on, I, I want to look for choices that I can use for this song that I'm working for. So I'm going to get out and kind of go through my cards and say, well, I could use this face or this word or this musical thing. And, and you kind of lay them out like uh, in the practice room on the music stand or on the top of the piano. Like here's here's my song. Here's the progression of choices for my song and the way I've laid these these cards out and then practice executing that series of uh, choices. So the cards are are meant to be first of all a catalyst for creative choice making that is just getting more accustomed to making a variety of interesting choices. But then they also become a tool for song preparation as you start to make choices and build up a sequence for your song and say, well, let's try this and this. And maybe there are there are also um, wild cards in, in the deck. So you can have a place where maybe you just put in a blank card or perhaps you make a card of your own. I've gotten really great response from voice teachers who say, well, this is just a thing where if I if I have the savvy cards in my teaching studio, and, and so while my student is working on this song or this vocal exercise or whatever, well, let's let's introduce the element of choice making, uh, theatrical choice making into what you're doing. Let's pull a card at random, or let's pull, you know, if, if I have a student who is always, you know, say, averse to being a certain way, I can strategically use the, the cards to guide them into kinds of choices where they're, they're less comfortable. I've gotten really great response from uh, high school teachers using them in, uh, in uh, group classes. I have teachers who are also using them in non-singing applications, though, working on monologues, because this, a lot of the things that uh, that we're talking about with song preparation also come into play when we're talking about working on, on monologues or working on improvisation and scenes. So it was a, it was a tool that really grew out of a problem that I needed to solve in the, in the classroom. And a couple of years ago, I finally sat down with a graphic designer and, and, and made a kind of professional version of them, which is now a, a product that uh, people all over the world are, are buying. And now I have my very own set and I'm excited to use them. What I love is that they're a tactile, it's like a flashcard. It's something you can hold in your hand. And so much of what we do is abstract and like passing and it's emotional. It's inside of us. Our voice is not something with buttons that we could press. Like so much of music and acting is in the world of the mind and to have something physical that you can grab and put in front of you just adds another dimension to our practice, as you said. Um, but it also, I love the idea of picking things at random because you start singing a phrase with an intent that you would never have chosen, but it can allow for such amazing, you know, vocal colors to come through, or you might suddenly see like, oh, to sing this like I'm accusing somebody is a really great new take on this that I could use. And it just keeps things fresh. Um, and the idea that when people get in a rut of doing, making those same choices, as you said, they're averse to certain things. And you as a teacher can be like, oh, well, the deck said you had to do this. So I guess you got to do it. You know, like, here's what the next card is. You don't have to choose it for performance. You don't have to do it forever. But for today, let's just try it. And I feel like, having it come out of a deck, have it something physical you put on your music stand while you're singing, it maybe makes us more open to trying those things out. And like, it's not a permanent choice. This is a fun, it's a game, you know, it brings in the game aspect, which I think having fun and engaging in play while we're practicing 
again, opens up new doors and opens up our willingness to try things. I, I love it, Corey. You've you, you've you've gotten all of the all of the things exactly that I that I hoped you would get um, from from this. Yes, the fact that they're a physical thing um, is actually, I think, kind of part of their magic. You know, people said, "Oh, well, you could make this into an app and put it on your phone and so on." But everything it's like, and you could, but it, you know, everything lives on our phones right now. And for me, there's something about. The, the fact that they are cards, they are like a like a game. My kids collected Pokemon cards, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they kind of traded their cards and so on. Um, and, uh, and 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 I like that uh, about this. So, if somebody wanted to get their hands on a copy of the book and the Savvy Cards, where would they go to purchase that? The place on the internet for all things Savvy is the website, which is SavvySingingActor.com. Uh, where you'll find, among other things, uh, a store where you can buy the book, where you can buy savvy cards, where you can find out about online courses. I've been doing some online teaching uh, in, in group setting, working on Zoom. So uh, later this year, I'm going to be offering an online course for teachers. So that would be the, the best place to go with SavvySingingActor.com. Fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. We'll also put all of your information in in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today, Charlie. It has just been so great to get to know you a little bit after reading your book. And thank you again for sharing this with our listeners. Oh, you're very welcome. I really feel like I've connected with with a kindred spirit uh, today. And that's been a lot of fun for me. Same here. Thank you again. I had such a great time in this conversation with Charlie and as a musician, I just so appreciate that he brings like elements of music world into the theater classroom. It's so neat to see how he combines all that. Um, As I said, I highly recommend that you check out the book. I will have all that information in the show notes on my website and on the podcast show notes right in your hand on your phone. Um, Here are the takeaways. Number one, songs are a series of individual events and phrases. Number two, making choices is crucial to the art of successful acting and singing. Number three, a savvy actor is specific, authentic, varied, and intense. Number four, specific means making a choice, doing this and not that. God is in the details. Number five, be a shish kebab actor with a series of distinct choices, each one different from the previous element. Don't be an applesauce actor where a whole song feels like one general mood. Number six, authenticity is behaving truthfully on stage. It's also about eliminating habits and mannerisms that diminish our truthfulness. Number seven, similar to musicians, dancers, and athletes, actors must have a daily practice where they work on the rudiments of acting through song. Number eight, Take the wheel of your song. Make deliberate turns as each new phrase occurs. Well, thank you for listening today, everybody. If you would like to connect, you can find me on Instagram at Koryamaoka, or better yet, swing on by Koryamaoka.com. You can check out the resources page. I've got several free PDF downloads you can grab there, and you can also sign up for my email list there. All right, until next time, I'm your host, Koryamaoka. I will see you on Studying the Song.